Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Getting to Better Together, our podcast mini-series sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership, CITSL as we call ourselves, at the University of the Sunshine Coast and supported by Noosa FM Radio 101.3. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubbi Gubbi people, and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. But in addition to that acknowledgement and that statement of respect, I also want to recognise and highlight the concerns of so many Australians about the persistence of the fractured relationships between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples of this land and those of us who are non-Indigenous. I'm among those who own to a personal sense of despair at the failure of so many attempts in our history to address the matter in all of its complexity and all of the moral attention that it deserves. Many politicians, historians, anthropologists, and even religious leaders over the decades must shoulder much of the blame for what most charitably could be called a lack of attention to what in fact is surely a disgraceful history of the exclusion and so much maltreatment of First Nations people. Yet so many generations of the rest of the citizenry are guilty by association, by looking the other way, as it's been said, or by arguing that we were never told about the true history. In his 1968 Boyer Lectures, Professor W. E. H. Stanner argued that Australia's sense of its past, its very collective memory, has been built on a state of forgetting which could not be explained by absent-mindedness. Moral concerns, the foundations for deciding the right and proper thing to do, demand an ultimate respect for truth, inasmuch as it can be established for present circumstances and how, from these circumstances, the modern conditions have arisen. Hence the significance of an unbiased historical record, yet a clear lack of commitment to truth, or of equal importance, acceptance of the profound significance of the process of truth-telling has littered and distorted that record with respect to the relationships between non-Indigenous and Indigenous peoples in this country. As the signatories to the Uluru Statement emerging from the 2017 National Constitutional Convention labelled from the heart, those who gathered stated we seek a Makarato Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and the First Nations and truth-telling about our history. It's within this spirit, at some date between August and December of this year, that we're going to be asked to vote in a referendum on whether we do or do not approve of altering the nation's constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The situation leading to the actual vote demands reasoned discussions, clarification of points of difference, and exposures not just of misunderstandings, but also of deliberate attempts to spread misinformation, disinformation, and alternative facts. And all this must be set within a context of the quest for the right and proper thing to do, and the critical need for truth-telling among us all as thoughtful and committed moral citizens. Tragically, the arguments between the supporters and non-supporters of the current position are becoming increasingly fierce, and one might argue almost akin to verbal warfare between the parties. To quote the 18th century English moralist, essayist and playwright Samuel Johnson, among the calamities of war may be jointly numbered the diminution of the love of truth by the falsehoods which interest dictates and credulity encourages. How about this from Corey Bernardi, a Sky News host? 
Dividing this country by race and allowing a tribal house of lords to rule over us is the most regressive step in the proud history of Australia. Or this from Peter Dutton, the leader of the opposition no less. Changing our constitution to enshrine a voice will take our country backwards, not forwards. It will have an Orwellian effect where all Australians are equal, but some Australians are more equal than others. My guest today, Tony Gleeson, has written a powerful piece that exposes many of the misunderstandings and misstatements that are encouraging non-critical adoption by those who fail to even identify, let alone truthfully address, the issues related to the right and proper thing to do with respect to the formal establishment of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. While Tony certainly fits our category of thoughtful and committed citizens as the farmer he has long been, he has also had an illustrious career as a scientist with the New South Wales Department of Agriculture, with CSIRO, and the New South Wales Overseas Trade Authority. He was a senior policy advisor and chief of staff to the Australian Minister for Primary Industries, Energy. He's also held an adjunct professorship, had been an advisor to a research program, coordinator within academia, and has sat on a number of significant rural-related corporate boards. Back in 1990, he established a contract research and advisory business. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Richard. Let me ask you first, by what motivated you to write the piece which I refer to and which you entitled Country Perspective on the Proposed Constitutional Referendum? There's always multiple reasons why I suppose we do things, but one that comes to mind is a recent discussion I had with a neighbour who said that he couldn't be held responsible for what happened 200 years ago. And my response was, I agree, but you could be held responsible now for not being informed about the opportunities that are presented to us. Yeah, terrific. And I think that that's essentially what got me motivated to write the notes that I've done and, and to talk to people about it. Mm. We have a clear responsibility mm -hmm. to be informed, mm -hmm. irrespective of whether we finally decide to vote yes or no. Mm. I mean, it's often in terms of disinformation and misinformation, it's often said that rural people really show less of a commitment to the notion of a voice or for listening to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But that's not my experience and it's certainly not yours, is it? No, although living where I do, in northern New South Wales and very much influenced by the Queensland uh, ethos, um, my community is much more on the negative side in relation to the proposed referendum than it is to the positive side. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And it's not surprising. I live on the borders of uh, New England electorate, which is Barnaby Joyce, <laughs> and the Maranoa electorate, which is David Littleproud. Okay. And so really in the heart of conservative country voting. Right, right. Uh, and that creates a certain amount of interest and tension. Mm. What would be the essential logic behind their no, presuming that they would vote no. Yes. Uh, in discussions with, with various people, there's always a movement away from this fact onto the next one, okay. rather than there being a single thing. There's a whole matrix, if you like, of mm -hmm. different things. Mm. But certainly, uh, there, there is, they've been influenced by the campaign to suggest that we don't know enough about it the nonsense of the, if you don't know, vote no mm. idea. Mm. And also, I think there's traction to the view, the incorrect view, that what's being proposed introduces racism and separation into the, into the, into the Constitution, which is 
I think one of the enormous and, and sad fallacies of some of the proponents of the, of the no voice, of mm. the no to the voice. Right. Um, At the start of the document that I'm referring to, you identify 12 concerns that have been identified by people who in, intend to vote no. Could you perhaps list some of these and, and briefly outline your response to them? Just before I do that, perhaps, is to make point that what we agree on is actually greater than we disagree. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And, and I think that that's so easily forgotten when we get into the, the, the forces, the political forces that surround this whole discussion. Right. I mean, we essentially agree on recognising the Indigenous people in the Constitution. Yeah. We essentially agree that their disadvantage now is acute. And thirdly, we agree that if they had a better impact, in, input into the policy and programme, program, well, then we, that would help, not solve every problem, but help right. improve the situation. Right. And so we get back to, I think, Richard, we should get back to, is uh, a discussion about whether or not we need this in the Constitution, hmm. rather than do we need it. Right. And I, I loved uh, Richard Archer, the MP from Tasmania's comment to the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, came out against the voice, and her comment was, we would do it differently, but we didn't. And the key thing now, I think, is that we are doing it. Right. And we can have endless debates about whether or not this is the right model or not, right. quickly forgetting that the model of the voice that would be agreed on in our current parliament might be quite different to the model that's agreed on in 10 years' time with yeah. a different government. Yeah. And for people to be asking about the details now of the proposed model, even though there is an enormous amount of detail available in the Karma Langdon report, right. is to ignore the fact that at any one point in the future, that particular model of the voice could change because we have a different government. Yeah. And so I would have thought that one of the responses to those who claim we don't know enough would be to ask them, well, what do we know about yours? Yeah, exactly. You know, what, what does the National Party propose to be its right. one? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, coming back to your question, objections. <laughs> Certainly uh, underlying a lot of the comments, I think there is a sense of alertness about the incorrect proposition that the referendum introduces a racist element, a racism into the, into the Constitution. Right. And it's ironic really that the proposal is really to give effect to the 1967 referendum, which in fact deleted the exclusion of Indigenous people from the Commonwealth being able to legislate in relation to different races. Yes, it did. And this is really now, so many years later, a simple proposition to give constitutional effect to a referendum in 1967 to enable the Commonwealth to act in relation to the Indigenous people, remembering that that referendum was supported by 90.7% of the voting population. Yeah. I mean, it might, might be worth um, reminding people of, of the actual sections of the Constitution that were rejected uh, through the yes vote, as it were. Section 51, for instance, said, the people of any race other than the Aboriginal people in any state for whom it is necessary to make special laws. I mean, what an extraordinary statement. And secondly, in reckoning the numbers of the people of the Commonwealth or of a state or other part of the Commonwealth, Aboriginal natives shall not be counted. I mean, what an extraordinary thing. That was only 50 years ago. Yes, yes. And, and it's un, unsurprising we all voted 
those who voted then, yeah, yeah. including perhaps the present from an age point of view. And this from a group of people who've only been here for a quarter of one millennium compared to people who've been here for 60,000 years. In my agricultural life, I hear so much on the media about this person is a fifth generation farmer, <laughs> which annoys me enormously. Right. Yes. So it gives some sort of sense to whatever the person is saying. Yeah. But also it is a millisecond compared to the 60,000 years that the Indigenous people have lived here. Going back to the objections of I might, yeah. these are not in any particular order. There is a view around, in my community anyway, that the Indigenous people should not be able to dictate uh, to the rest of the community. <laughs> right. But really, of course, it's only advisory. Mm. They're not dictating no, at all. No. And, and having experienced a lot of lobbying in the Canberra scene, I can tell you that even with the voice, the Indigenous people are competing in a very big fish pond. Uh, There's also a view around that's driven by some elite representatives of the Indigenous communities, but if you know how this has evolved, that, that really mm. doesn't stand up. Mm. Um, the cost of the voice can't be justified. No matter how it was organised, it would be minuscule compared to the cost of the disadvantage and the programs. I mean, there are some estimates around that the cost of the excessive incarceration, imprisonment of Indigenous people, costs the nation in the vicinity of $15 billion a year. Mm. Do the sums, and that comes down to about $1,000 per voting household in Australia. Right. A 10% decrease in that problem would pay for any sort of voice that you could do. Absolutely. Construct. And that's mm -hmm. a tip of the iceberg. Mm. There is, I think, somewhat of a legitimate view that there is not enough known but it's legitimised a little bit by, I think, the failure of the current government to make the point clearer that those things are not decided within the referendum, but they're decided within the parliament. And I could go on about that. But I mean, I think that it is particularly ironic that the document that based outlines the proposed voice is one commissioned by uh, the coalition under the Morrison leadership which people like Mr Dutton would have been party to in Cabinet. And so it's not that they're unaware of what's available, it's that they portray that it's not available. Um, which brings us back to truth and the lack thereof. Precisely. And, and I suppose that takes me to a hobby of mine, is the politics of it all, and that I think in compared to 1967, what we're seeing now is a bit of a bun fight between the Prime Minister, the Leader of the Opposition and the Leader of the National Party. So those three individuals, I think, bear considerable responsibility, not equally, but right. considerable responsibility right. for enabling the current mess to occur mm. or to, in fact, to encourage it. There's been a void, and when you have a void in, in the public discourse, it's filled with bullshit mm. in simple terms. Yes. There are many other things. The one that perhaps in certain circles, not so much at home, but alleged judicial overreach, that is, that the High Court will ruin the nation because it makes silly comments or silly judgments about uh, something that the voice might or might not have done or the mm. parliament might have done in relation to that advisings. I mean, that shows a disrespect for the High Court, which is probably one of our most staid <laughs> and respected yes. institutions. And yeah. so if you really wish some academics and others in legal fraternities are, are talking about the overreach, I mean, they really start to need to think about what that means in respect to their relationship with the High Court. Mm. It, it's mm. shameful, frankly. Mm. 
There are a number of other things. Certainly there is a view around that it's not supported by Indigenous people. The evidence is quite the contrary. In the Northern Territory, which is the highest proportion of Indigenous population in any jurisdiction, we've got the four land councils, which are uh, democratically elected, all coming out in favour of the voice, and, and there are many other examples of that. So there's a whole range of different things. Certainly, I think they're the main ones, but, but underpinning it all is um, the, the, the two things. One is I think the government has enabled a void to occur between the announcement of the Gama Festival in last year and now, and that void has not been adequately filled. And so it's been filled, not by the government, I mean, and it's mm. been filled by people who see political advantage right. and some other genuine people in creating dissension. Yeah. I mean, you hear people saying, well, of course, this would just be a front for activists and the voice essentially would be taken over by people who have an agenda which is contrary to the spirit of, of the voice. Yes. I suppose having worked in Parliament House through the 80s, yes. I'm fairly familiar with activism by all sorts of lobby groups. Yes. One of which I think sticks in my mind was a objection by one of the farm lobby groups that ought to remain anonymous, no. who objected to a Hawke government grant to a group of lesbian surfboard riders, yeah. <laughs> which I mentioned at the meetings was somewhat outside of their uh, jurisdiction. And it was one of the few times I was reprimanded by my minister for being so outspoken as, a, as an advisor. Right. So every, every group will right. from time to time steer away from their yes. core business. Yes. But frankly, they get squashed down fairly quickly when mm, they're yeah. out of court. I mean, of course, every lobbyist is, is an activist, right? Precisely. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. No. And no. many people who are not lobbyists in our community are act activists and mm. perhaps more of us ought to be. That's what it's all about. If you're not active, why live on? I mean, the context of some of the things that we've been exploring in the last 50 or so episodes of this miniseries has been this notion of knowledge and ways of knowing. And I guess one of my great disappointments in discussions about the voice is the fact that the actual listening to Aboriginals would give us a wonderful opportunity to actually listen to how people see the world differently. Uh, and at the moment, we have this sort of awful homogeneous way of saying, well, this is what Australia is, and go back to the notions of assimilation, say, well, you have to assimilate into it, otherwise you're not Australian. Uh, so it's all very well in, in 1967 to say, well, yes, you are a citizen, but a citizen of what? And we keep saying we're a multicultural nation. Well, clearly we're not if we're trying to push one homogeneous view of what this citizenry should look like. And I believe that The Voice, for me, provides a wonderful opportunity to listen. So it's not just that they have a voice to us, as it were, but we have the opportunity to listen to how they know things that they know, which is profoundly different. And the way they, and you again, were a farmer would appreciate this more than most, the respect for literally custodianship of land as distinct from ownership of land. Yeah, so that was brought home to me, I think, uh, when the Minister for Indigenous Australians, with the best of intent, listed four areas, uh, which we might focus on through the voice, uh, mm. they being education, yeah. health, employment, yeah. and... Um, 
the fourth one escapes me. Yeah, how, me housing, too. housing. Yes, that's right. And, and in a way, if you take it at face value, it's a perpetuation of the silo thinking. Exactly. And yeah. really what we ought to be doing is enabling a community view coming forward. Yes. Whereby we don't deal in those silos, but they're intertwined. Yep. And why not in some of the Indigenous communities are very superficial to do with? Mm -hmm. They couldn't combine the education and housing and health so that they have in those communities Indigenous people who are building houses, who are providing the health opportunities, and so the education would be directed towards those community needs mm -hmm. rather than what we, as the Ango population, might, might perceive to be the needs. Uh, well, I think uh, it's a great misunderstanding of this notion of participation, isn't it? That, that one of the most primitive stages of participation is to say, well, I have this idea, what do you think? Rather than, what do you think? Now, what ideas do we have? Agree entirely. Yeah. I mean, we really do need to step back and enable a more creative and interesting construct to come forward. Mm -hmm. Because the old construct is not working. And we need to not lose sight of the fact that the disadvantage is quite acute. Yeah. yeah. Some in my community point to those, particularly in the urban communities, the indigenous people in the urban communities you know, are quite well off. And my simple retort to that is that when you look at the statistics for the total indigenous population, they are devastating. Mm. So even with mm. people who are re relatively quite well off, we still have statistics within the gap arrangements, you know, the data mm. on the gap, mm. which are devastating. Mm. And so mm. one can assume that in remote communities in particular, they are even worse. Yeah. So, and I think the structure of the proposed voice, no matter which way you go there, enables a really sensible representation from all those communities. Yeah, yeah. It's not a no-brainer. I don't wish to with disrespect those who seem to have problems with it. But I think that we need to stand back from what I'm going to call the politically motivated uh, activities right. and look at it from a more individual personal responsibility mm. point of view mm. that all Australians have for improving this situation. Yes. And if not this way, well then, given where we've got to, it's going to be very difficult to get a different option up. And so even if you in your heart believe there is a better option, remember that it won't get up. Mm. It's a bit like the Republic. People thought there'd be a better option than the one presented, mm. and we end up with no movement on mm. that issue. Mm. And we can't, it would be a sad day if I was to live out the rest of my life with no nothing happening. <laughs> Which is a perfect ending to a discussion on getting to better together. The notions of participation, the notions of listening to each other with moral respect and responsibility. Tony, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for joining us and for putting your points with such clarity. Thank you, Richard. And thank you all for listening. I look forward to the next episode. Until then, it's goodbye.